An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lucumnick. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, our guest is James Shapiro, perhaps the foremost Shakespeare scholar in the country. Jim is professor of English at Columbia University, the author of multiple books on Shakespeare, including the prize-winning 1599, A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare. His most recent, Shakespeare in a Divided America, was one of the New York Times' 10 best books and a National Book Critics Circle Award finalist. Jim has been awarded Guggenheim, Coleman, and NEH fellowships, has been inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and serves on the board of directors of the Royal Shakespeare Company in London and a Shakespeare scholar in residence at the Public Theater in New York. Interestingly, he's also taught Shakespeare to international executives at Columbia's Business School. So it turns out the bard and business make an interesting mix. Welcome, Jim. It's great to see you, John. We go way back, and it's a pleasure seeing you today. I met Jim when we were both uh, entering Columbia College, so we do go back a ways, which makes me ask you, Jim, what's your origin story? What's made you who you are? My adult life has been spent doing Shakespeare, and that would have struck the 14-year-old Jim Shapiro as extraordinary. I grew up in Brooklyn, went to a public middle school, or I should say ninth grade, where I was first exposed to Shakespeare, the class read Romeo and Juliet. I hated it. Didn't even get the dirty bits that some of my classmates uh, seemed to get. And I swore I'd never take another Shakespeare class unless forced to do so. And as an undergraduate at Columbia, I never took the Shakespeare lecture with the, the great Ted Taylor. And even in grad school, I never studied Shakespeare formally. In the late 1970s, those of a certain age will remember that Freddie Laker, figured out how to run transatlantic flights for $99, one way or both ways, I can't remember. And I started going over to Europe and I ended up in London. And the least expensive entertainment you could see was theater for 50 pence a night. You could go to see on a student rush basis, some of the greatest Shakespeare actors playing anywhere. And I got hooked. It was like a drug and cheaper and less habit forming in certain ways than other drugs available at the time. And I spent every summer through college and the years after going back to London every summer for a month after holding down some crummy job in New York through the first couple of months of summer, I'd quit and see 30 plays in 30 days. And by the time I was in my early 20s, I'd probably seen 250 Shakespeare productions, all of them now tattooed inside my skull. I remember them better than a production I might've seen 18 months ago. So that is in a way the origin story. And I guess it sets me apart from other distinguished Shakespeareans, most of whom were terrific students. I was not a great student in high school or in college or in graduate school. 
but I kind of got the plays by watching them and kind of like a mechanic opening up the hood of a car and understanding what works and what doesn't. And because of that, I've been able to work with theater companies here and in the UK and have been very lucky to hold down a job teaching Shakespeare to smart kids. So it's interesting. You, you in effect, became not a ski bum, but a Shakespeare bum in, in London. And yet you yourself note that in some ways Shakespeare has been adopted more by America, perhaps even more deeply than in his native England. So let me ask you, what is it about Shakespeare that makes him Shakespeare? Why is it tattooed so much in your head? You note that he often leaves open space for various interpretations from multiple points of views. So is Shakespeare, at least Shakespeare's writings, the plays at least, just a Rorschach test that we sort of project things onto? Or is there something deeper that strikes at an American soul? I, I think you're right in it is that kind of test and we respond in that way. But Americans are bad at arguing with each other over the things they disagree about. Abortion, the war in Afghanistan, whether one should get uh, COVID vaccination. You know, we talk past each other. And Shakespeare forces us in plays that again and again deal with conflict, ethical conflict, political conflict, marital conflict, doesn't matter really what it is. He forces us to engage in disputing difference, whether it's anti-Semitism, immigration. He runs through the gamut of issues that for the past 200 years in this country have divided us and continue to divide us sometimes violently. So I think we're drawn back to Shakespeare because there's very little middle ground. There are very few patches of turf where we can argue and Shakespeare's plays remain one of them. So in some ways, Shakespeare by being English, by being 16th, 17th century, and in terms of just Shakespearean language provides a neutral ground for these arguments to play out, everything from, you point out, racial issues in Othello to who is actually entitled to certain things. Do you think an American playwright could ever achieve that stature, or does he have to be sort of foreign and neutral? Let's say I was an agent for an American playwright pitching a school board uh, about this playwright's best play. Your high school juniors and seniors will love this play. It has suicide. It has incest. It has alcoholism. It has incredible violence. It's called Hamlet. And there's no way people would accept that play into the curriculum. You know, talk about cancel culture. It just wouldn't make it past the front door. So I think it's much harder for a contemporary playwright to, to make it into the curriculum, Shakespeare gets a free pass. And if we thought hard enough about it, that is to say those who were anxious about these issues and didn't want them explored, thought hard enough about it, there's no way we'd be teaching Shakespeare in 90% of American secondary schools, which is what we do right now. So the primary audience for this podcast is the financial community. And, and Shakespeare obviously wrote frequently about money and business, famous phrases in his characters, like neither a borrower nor a lender be, put money in thy purse, money is a good soldier, but 
you have personally cautioned me that Shakespeare is not his characters. Yet you taught Shakespeare at the Columbia Business School. So what should business people and investors learn from his writings? That's a great question. And I have to say, the, I learn a lot from my 20-year-olds at Columbia and have for the last three decades or so. But I learned different things from teaching Shakespeare to business executives. They see things in the plays that I don't, that my students don't. So I've been the gainer from that. And I'm continuing to work in executive international program at the B School at Columbia, which is a terrific program. We're not used to thinking of Shakespeare as a businessman. We think of him as a great artist and there's still that kind of iconic image of from Shakespeare in love of having him sitting in an attic somewhere, balling up wad of paper after paper as he can't get the play going. That is as far from reality as one can imagine. I, I don't think undergraduates signing up to take a Shakespeare class want the first lecture to be about Shakespeare as entrepreneur and brilliant businessman. But let me give you the, the two-minute version of that. When Shakespeare was born in 1564, there were no permanent theaters in England. It hadn't been since Roman days. That changed in the late 1570s when he was uh, a teenager. Shakespeare came to London around 1590 or so, and he understood how to be part of and make the most of radical technological changes like theaters in urban centers, which could generate tremendous profit. The dominant economic mode at that time was the guild system, incredibly hierarchical, incredibly time-consuming. You spent your seven years as an apprentice. You finally made it up to be a free man and then rose in the ranks. Shakespeare figured out how to dodge that. One reason he dodged that was because he got married at the very young age of 18, which meant you could not be an apprentice. So he had to work in this alternative economic model, which turned out for him to be incredibly lucrative. Shakespeare died a wealthy man. Most of his profits got churned back into real estate. He wasn't interested in, as many others were, putting money into high risk, high return foreign trade companies. He wanted something real. He wanted rent money. He wanted real estate. And that's where he spent his money. If you want to write a play in the 1590s and you weren't a member of a theater company, which was uh, an early joint stock company, six or seven or eight men would get together pool an investment of, say, today, $100,000 or so each, and they would become shareholders in that company, sharers, as Shakespeare scholars like to call them, probably to distinguish themselves from the business community where we actually talk about shareholders. But Shakespeare's goal from the time he arrived in London in the late 1580s was to become a shareholder in a company. Because if you were a shareholder, you stood to make one-sixth or one-seventh of the profit from performing those plays. So let me just run the economics of that by you. A theater could hold 3,000 people. The minimum price of admission was a penny. It went up to four or five or six times that amount for privileged seating. If you could pack 
2,500 or 3,000 people into a theater, you made a lot of money as a shareholder in that company. Now, the people who weren't making money in that company were the gig workers. That is to say, the actors who were not members of that six or seven strong shareholder group, all of whom acted in the plays. These plays were written for about 14 or 15 people. So you had to hire hired men for very low prices, and you had to keep providing new plays because audiences wanted a different play every day. So the other gig workers were playwrights who got six pounds of play at a time where a schoolmaster might make 20 pounds a year. So you had to write three plays a year, every year, to make it as a freelance playwright. Shakespeare, when he got to London, held down two full-time jobs as an actor and as a playwright. And remember, he didn't come in as a member of a company. He aspired to that. But all he could make was basically the equivalent of $100,000 today, 50K from acting and 50K from playwriting. And that was precarious because it was, in a way, a gig economy, the theater world. If you were a member, uh, a shareholding member of the company, you stood outside of that. Shakespeare's great break in life was a two-year pandemic from 1592 to 94. In 1592, he's hustling, writing plays and acting as often as he can. In 1594, where one out of every seven Londoners dies and a lot of theater companies go belly up like restaurants in New York and across the country nowadays, he survived. And he was asked by an extraordinarily talented group of actors to join them and become a shareholder. And it may be that they just use his plays as collateral or he borrowed money. We, we just don't know. But from that day on, Shakespeare was financially a made man. He has pandemic to thank. We don't really talk about that in Shakespeare's life, but he thrived. And within a couple of years, he had bought the second best house in Stratford for his family that he had left behind. And he would continue to rake in profits. He was lucky that pandemic didn't return for another decade. My main point here is this. If you are not management, if you are not a shareholder, you have to do what other people want you to do. You don't get to write the plays you want. You have to write the plays they might want to buy from you since plays were written and then pitched to a company and they either bought them or they didn't. Once Shakespeare was a shareholder and responsible for writing two or three or four plays a year for his company, he could do what he wanted. So there's no artistic freedom and license unless you have the financial security, which he achieved. This is very similar to what people are thinking now about oppression of gig workers and Thomas Piketty's capital out earns labor and a whole host of things right now. And it's sort of a, a foreshadowing, to use the theatrical term, of today's distrust and income inequality and uh, social unrest caused by it. Did Let me ask you a question. Did any of this make it into his plays in terms of how he presents business or characters in language that some of our listeners might 
um, have experienced by seeing some of the police? Has he ever expressed that level of either desire or frustration about business? I think his way of looking at business was about social mobility more than anything else. That is to say, you weren't going to buy a yacht. You weren't going to buy a Porsche in those days. What did you spend your money on? What was the value of economic security? And Shakespeare grew up as the son of a man who early on in his life was a tremendous businessman and rose through the ranks in Stratford to be its most preeminent citizen and essentially the mayor of Stratford. And then his business went bust. His credit lines became dangerously compromised. And Shakespeare grew up watching his dad from the mid-1570s when he was a teenager until the day his dad died, hiding out in his house to avoid debt collection because debtors couldn't come into your house. So he knew about what it meant to fail as a businessman. He had to kind of cover the nut for his mom and dad and siblings for the remainder of their lives. So it's not as if this is a mystery. The plays themselves turn on making it out of one social station to a higher one. And most, you know, there's a wonderful production of Merry Wives in Central Park right now. Merry Wives is about middling class and page marrying an aristocrat who has no money, but by virtue of that marriage, much as in Romeo and Juliet, when Romeo, when Juliet's parents wanted to marry County Paris because he is nobility. The whole drive of that play is to get out of one social class into a higher one. Juliet's parents, like Romeo's, are good for the money. They're wealthy citizens, but that's not enough. What you have to do is secure a higher social station. And once you were noble, once you were a gentleman, there were privileges within that culture and you lived an easier life. Shakespeare's father was a yeoman, uh, basically a farmer who went into trade. But Shakespeare, in the late 1590s, when he had the money to do so, paid for the family to get a coat of arms. You know, I don't know how much money passed hands or what kind of influence he wielded, but by the late 1590s, Shakespeare could walk along the streets of London wearing a sword, which only those who were gentlemen could do. And unfortunately, his son hadn't died, so he couldn't pass that noble gentleman status onto his son. But that's what these plays are about. Every comedy is about upward social mobility. And I suppose every tragedy in history is holding on for dear life to what you have so that you don't slip out of that privileged class. And yet there's a way to do it because if you exhibit hubris, if you are Macbeth and you seek to move up by murdering the king, bad things happen. So there's a certain way that you have to do it. There is, but I think everybody watching Macbeth in 1606 at, at the Globe Theater understood that ambition, understood what Macbeth was driven to do. They may not have done it. 
They may have desired in their fantasies and in their dreams to do it, but they understood what that ambition was about. And it's not a huge leap to think of, I've never seen a production of Macbeth set in Silicon Valley, but somebody who decides to kill off the competition and make it to the top of the heap, despite all the unethical things he has to do, would not be a stretch for that audience, No, would Shakespeare's Macbeth have been a stretch for his own audiences. Interesting. Let me switch to a couple of rapid fire questions before we close. What's exciting to you today? What are you doing that's exciting to you either personally or professionally? That's a good question. I'm writing a new book that is exciting for me. It takes up a lot of hours of my day. I'm looking back at a doomed federal theater project from the late 1930s in America, where America was on the verge of a national theater. And for a few brief years, theater competed with the movies and with radio for the attention of Americans and was crushed by right-wingers in Congress who were threatened by this and decided to push back. So I'm interested, in other words, in spending my days thinking about the collision between money, politics, and culture And that seems uh, a good way to spend my intellectual life. The rest of the time, I'm trying to dodge COVID like everybody else. I bought a new bike and I'm cycling in Central Park. And I'm kind of waiting for this cloud to lift in this country, both, if you will, spiritually and politically, although I have no great faith that in the next few years that's going to happen. Aside from the research that you're doing, What are you reading right now for fun or enlightenment? I have to write a couple of reviews. One's a book review of a new biography uh, of Shakespeare for the New York Times. And I'm reviewing a a new film with Denzel Washington and Francis McDermott as the Macbeth. So I'm doing background readings on the Coen brothers for the film. And I'm doing background reading on biographies. I, I don't read a lot for fun. I'm looking forward to reading a couple of great September books. Uh, Colm Toybean has a book on Thomas Mann. David Grossman has a new novel out. Sally Rooney has a new book out, new novel out as well. But those compete for my time. And uh, sadly, work comes first for me. So who's doing theater today that doesn't have to be Shakespeare, even classic, that's don't miss or worth a trip to see, Grant, even with pandemic precautions in place? That's a hard question to answer right now. The, the Shakespeare world, like much of the cultural world, is in upheaval due to social justice movements and Black Lives Matter and inequality, both in the management of Shakespeare companies and in who gets to speak Shakespeare's words. The Merry Wives in Central Park is an all-Black cast directed by Saeem Ali, and it is challenging right now to chart the course of Shakespeare, both in the UK and the US. And part of my job as a board member of the RSC is to tell them which way the wind is blowing from the states and what kind of political and cultural forces have hit here that are gonna hit there that they have to be as a board prepared for. So in a way, questions of inclusion, questions of succession that are central to Shakespeare, govern my life as an advisor to these companies. Last question. Is there one fact or belief that you wish everyone knew? Right now, in all honesty, that getting vaccinated will save your life. 
as I open up the New York Times and read of one tennis star after another refusing to get vaccinated, and as I decide whether to go out to uh, see the uh, US Open, I think, are these people out of their minds? What bubbles do they live in? And I'm counting on members of the business community, since those of us who work in the arts and in education have failed miserably to persuade uh, a large percentage of this country to get vaccinated. The only way it's going to change is if airlines and businesses and restaurants require vaccination. Otherwise, we can't move forward. We can't move forward economically. I care about my bank account as much as anybody does and my investments. And we can't move forward politically as a nation until we master this. And I'm counting on those in the business community to use their savvy, use their intelligence, to use the right kinds of pressures, which they know better than I, to get the workforce going again and vaccinated. Good advice from someone who's studied pandemics currently and going back 400 years. Thanks so much, Jim. You've been listening to Outside In. I'm John Lukumnik, and our guest has been Professor Jade Shapiro of Columbia University, whose latest book, Shakespeare in a Divided America, walks a knife's edge between literary criticism, history, and sociology, and is all the sharper for it. Jim, thanks so much. Uh, It's been a pleasure seeing you, John, and talking with you. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com.